In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I honestly hadn't planned on giving up quite this much for Lent. That's how one commentator on Twitter put it recently. This is, again, an odd and unexpected time we are living in, and an odd and unexpected time to be preaching. And yet, here we have this passage about the death of Lazarus, which seems to be fit so beautifully into our moment. You know, this past week has seen the emergence of some kind of gallows humor about our situation that I, for one, do find hopeful, like that tweet. You find hope amidst the grief that is surrounding us. Because that's what it is. Uh, The Harvard Harvard Business Review this past week published an interview with David Kessler. David Kessler is one of the world's foremost experts on grief. He, in fact, co-authored with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross many of the the great texts about grief and the stages of grief. And uh, the the, um, title of the interview was That Discomfort You're Feeling is Grief. This is what he said. He says, we're feeling a number of different griefs at the moment. We feel the world has changed, and it has. We know this is temporary, but it doesn't feel that way, and we realize things will be different. Just as going to the airport is forever different from how it was before September 11th, things will change, and this is the point at which they changed. The loss of normalcy the fear of economic toll, the loss of connection. This is hitting us, and we're grieving collectively. We are not used to this kind of collective grief in the air. Now, the passage that Jen just read uh, finds Jesus entering a situation in which there is grief thick in the air. Christ's friend Lazarus has died. And he has arrived too late to offer help. In fact, Lazarus, we are told, has been in the grave four days. His sisters, Mary and Martha, they're not only what sounds like accommodating a lot of visitors from Jerusalem, because where they are in Bethany is very close to Jerusalem. So they're probably, like anyone dealing with grief in that moment, they're, they're, they're stressed because they're having to play host as well as deal with the loss of this uh, loved one. And yet both Mary and Martha in their own way, and the one we've just heard here is Martha, uh, her, her words to, the, to Jesus are so human and so um, uh, true. She says to him, she doesn't say, hi, Jesus, welcome to Bethany. She says simply, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. If you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. This, uh, the, in, 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 in a one phrase, Martha has captured the strange mixture of sadness, frustration, anxiety, confusion, and blame that so often constitute our grief. In fact, to use Kubler-Ross's understanding, this is a bunch of the different stages of grief wrapped up into a single statement. But you'll note that they're talking to Jesus like real people, not stock characters. There's nothing pious about that statement. 
I mean, can you relate to the jumbles of the jumble of emotions that is being expressed? I would say that we are very much, I read this story and I identify with both Martha and Mary. I mean, these past few weeks, we've traveled quite an emotional distance, sometimes within the space of minutes. We feel frustrated about our powerlessness in the situation. We feel anger at those that we believe might have been able to do something or could do something now. We, we watch as other people's true colors come out, and, and we, but we also see other people that maybe we didn't think highly of, we watch them surprise us. And above all, we feel confused because no one really knows what's going on. Now, to be clear, these women have lost something. They have suffered a great cost. You and I may not have lost a loved one, at least not yet, thank God. But we're all losing things. We're losing precious plans we made to see our friends and our loved ones, to celebrate birthdays and anniversaries. We're losing money. That's a very real anxiety that is, people feel almost ashamed to, to surface, but it's there. We're losing jobs. The report this past week was bracing, alarming, and very upsetting. We're losing landmark events in our lives, like graduations. But we're also losing, above all, you might even say, we're losing companionship. I think about the cost of, of grandchildren not being allowed to hug their grandparents. And that is a heartbreaking scenario for both parties. There is a real cost. And, and writing in Vox last week, uh, Ezra Klein said that the virus will cause a social recession. It will be a long time before people feel okay gathering in groups of 50,000, for example. There will be a collapse, or there already is, in, social, in the social uh, contact that is particularly hard on the populations most vulnerable to isolation and loneliness, which are older adults and people with disabilities or pre-existing health conditions. And yet, grief is not all there is. There is also hope. You'll note that Martha, in her address to Jesus, doesn't just lay this blame at his feet or this confusion. She also says, even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Even now, <clears throat> excuse me, there is hope, hope expressing itself as faith. And you know, as I've gone through um, you know, with, with ample distance, uh, walking around this town this past week and speaking to people on the phone, not over text, on the phone. Almost everyone I've interacted with has mentioned the hope they're seeing. Not, there's the hope and the, the, the fact that people are simply drastically changing their behavior for the sake of other people, some of whom they don't know, many of whom they don't know. That sort of the immense charity of, uh, of, of, of people making meals uh, for, for the homeless and for, for musicians giving free concerts and uh, all sorts of resources being offered. There is a, um, there's sort of an, an unsolicited uh, urge right now in folks to serve one another, which I think is very beautiful and would, should give us all pause and hope amidst the grief. 
Then there's also the clarifying aspect of this event. What uh, questions of secondary importance have all sort of faded by the wayside uh, about, you know, 10 days into this thing. Reality has come closer to the surface. And so not only do we have a sort of a pandemic of kindness, but we also see people asking the real questions, the questions that are in fact always there, but maybe we were too distracted or too harried or too anxious to ask before. Andrew Sullivan put it this way in an essay this week. He said, in this sudden stop, we will also hear the sounds of nature as our economic machine pauses for a moment and the contest for status or fame or money is canceled just for a while. Pascal famously wrote, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Well, we'll be able to test that now, won't we? These weeks of confinement, he writes, can also be seen as weeks of a national retreat, a chance to reset and rethink our lives, to ponder their fragility. I learned one thing in my 20s and 30s in the AIDS epidemic. Living in a plague is just an intensified way of living. It merely unveils the radical uncertainty of life that is already there and puts it into far sharper focus. Now, I believe that the extent to which reality has come closer to the surface, we, will also, we are also seeing God at work because God is always in reality, not in a construct or not in a, a, a sort of a fantasy, but he is where we are actually living, which is we cannot run away from right now. So the gifts of this surreal season are all around us, and I don't say that to diminish the suffering and fear and true cataclysmic problem that we are facing. But I see uh, faith being born and unity where there was division, and we would be remiss not to note that there is hope amidst the grief. And yet as much as we may identify with these women, there is one character in this episode whose plight speaks more directly to us today, and that character... That figure is Lazarus himself. We are all stuck in our tombs. We are confined. And we may only be on day one, to be honest. They make it clear that it's day four because they want to, they're, they're, John who is writing this and Martha who is saying it is trying to make it very clear that this man is dead. He's not sleeping. But you and I, you know, we may be only at the beginning of this thing. We may be, no one knows. But I do know that some of us are starting to smell. <laughs> I do know that the odor in my house, which is full of young boys, is becoming undeniable. But we're also like Lazarus in that we're unable to do anything. We're told to simply sit tight, to just lie around like a dead person. This is extremely difficult uh, for type A Americans who are human doings, not human beings. So like Lazarus, we all find ourselves at the mercy of forces beyond our control. We find ourselves needing to be raised. 
The Bible refers to us as dead in our transgressions. And again, what Sullivan is saying and what C.S. Lewis has said is that in fact, this confinement is revealing to us the true nature of life. Well, if that describes you though, a person stuck in a tomb, forced to do nothing, their agency taken away, but in desperate need of being raised, Well, if that describes you, well, then this passage drips with hope. Because while Mary and Martha may display a smidgen of faith, Lazarus doesn't. He is dead. So what about Jesus? How does Jesus respond to their grief and, in fact, to his death? Well, he enters into it. He shares it. This is the part of the Bible with the shortest verse, Jesus wept. You know, and, and the translation here, that never quite does it justice. It's, it's sobbing. And it's the type of sobbing that is sadness and anger mixed together. One friend of mine says that the, the real Greek translation is horse snort. That kind of, uh, you know, entire body shaking, uh, uh, intense a reaction of emotion and outpouring of grief for this person whom he loved. He is gone, and moreover, he should not be gone. This should not have happened. Christ is sad, but he's also angry at what his creation is being subject to. Now, those who've lost know that you, you often grieve, you sob, you, you cry, you're in agony to the extent that you have loved. This is a measure, in fact, of his love, those horse snorts. But that's not all he does. He doesn't just share in the grief. Because then he gets up and is still greatly disturbed, goes to the tomb. And when he's at the tomb, he instructs the stone to be rolled away, and then he calls Lazarus out by name. He would have to call him out by name because there would have been quite a few people buried in there. And he was looking for one guy. So Christ speaks, and when he speaks, he speaks specifically to a person. And his word, his instruction, his invitation, his command, it is active. It is creative. And Lazarus stumbles out, still wrapped in the burial clothes, to which Christ issues that beautiful, perhaps even sublime command, unbind him and let him go. You see, Jesus brings life out of death. Not only that, he brings life through death. This is what he does with Lazarus, and this is what he ultimately does for all of us on the cross. And this is what he is doing now. You see, if he can unquarantine Lazarus, he can unquarantine you and me. Just as resurrection came for that man, it is coming for you, and not you collectively, but you specifically. This quarantine, this awfulness, this grief, 
will come to an end. You see, the gospel that Christ preached is also the gospel that he embodied. And it is not merely that the grieving will be consoled, but that what's lost will be restored. Through his own death and resurrection, we will be and have been unbound from our captivity to disease and death. He has triumphed over these things. And he not only therefore brings resurrection and life, he is resurrection and life. Which means for you this morning that nothing can separate you from his love and his presence, including COVID-19. The virus may keep us from gathering together to worship him, but it cannot keep him from breaking into our tombs with his unfathomable grace and love. Amen.